The frontline generation is not a specific age group of individuals who are solely defined by post 9-11 military service. It is a call to action for those who will become the next greatest generation. Throughout history, there have always been those who stepped up to a front line, people who took action, who found a way to help, to serve. Today, more than ever, we must embrace the resounding truth that war teaches every generation of service members. The front line is not a place, it is us. It is the person to your left and to your right, and this is in combat and here at home. Each and every one of us can live with purpose, live for each other, and lead. Will you be part of history, part of your era's frontline generation? Welcome to Glorious Professionals, brought to you by GORUCK Media. I'm Jason, here with Emily in Jacksonville Beach, Florida. Our guest today on episode 19 is Marjorie Eastman. Marjorie served as a U.S. Army intelligence officer and commander. Her 10 years of post-9-11 military service include two combat deployments, one in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom, the other in support of Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. Her book, which is for me a great call to service more than anything else, is titled The Frontline Generation, How We Served Post 9-11. Marjorie is also the spouse of an army ranger, having met her husband Charles on a deployment to Iraq in 2003. How romantic. <laughs> Marjorie, thanks so much for coming on Glorious Professionals. Oh, I'm so excited to speak with you guys. Thank you for the invite. And by the way, like just hearing you read the epigraph to my book, I should have hired you to do my audiobook. That sounded good. <laughs> it's a great opener. It it really it really sets a, a tone for your book. I I really enjoyed it and you know, reading through the book, there's a lot of other great quotes, but I just kept coming back to this one. Because, you know, a lot of what we talk about is, is what you tell just the story in, in your book and in your career. Yeah. So for me, it, it really more than anything else, what defines our focus here is, is service, service to something greater than ourselves. And what I would like to start out with, what I would love for you to start out with for, for us is, is what drew you to service? So to date myself, I had just finished college in June of 2001. So I had the first job out of college. I was applying to grad school, paying my student loans off and asking myself those questions like, who do I want to be? How am I going to make difference? How is my life going to count? And, you know, I'm trucking away and, you know, fast forward a couple months, September 11th, 9-11 happens. And I, it was just a clear, clear call to service for me that I had to do something. I didn't know it was called service at the time, but I just knew I needed to do something. I didn't want to sit on the bench. I don't like bullies. So I was angry too. And so I started looking into options. Am I going to do the Peace Corps? Am I going to do a Teach for America? Like, I just want to be part of my generation's story. Um, and so I looked at all my options and I kept circling back to this thing called the United States Army. Um, and it was a little shocking because, you know, I don't have like, it's not like every generation of my family is, you know, serve, 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 serve. I, of course, we have the lineage of people serving the service. Um, but it just was so clear to me. It was a way for me to use all my talents um, and just to be all in, you know, mentally, physical, you know, emotionally. I just, I just thought this is it. And so I raised my right hand. So it's kind of a theme. I've talked to a lot of buddies over the years. And I, I, by the way, I graduated at the same time you did, same year. 
say, had the same kind of, it's a difficult time to be in your life regardless, right? Right. What am I going to do with my life? You feel all this pressure. You're supposed to be right. grown up when you graduate <laughs> from college and provide for yourself and stuff. But, geez, but seriously, this is the thing I didn't know 20 years ago is that we ask ourselves those questions throughout our lives. We still ask, like, how do I make a difference? How is my life going to count? It's not like you just get one checkbox. You're like, that done, you know? I mean, we just, I think that's just in our humanity um, that we want our lives to matter. At least that's what I've noticed and what I've talked with my friends. And we've all noticed is that, you know, we still have that desire to, to, to do and be. All right. So let's go back, though, to those, because it's a hard decision, raising your right hand in a time of war. Yeah. It's it's not an easy thing, right? I mean there's right. there's momentum, you get it in your head, you think about it, and you you do you want to be part of something bigger than yourself. That was the the tidal wave that I I was writing. And yet I know you had some other influences. Mom was kind of a hippie, you described her, right? <laughs> Which uh, my my mom was 17 when she got pregnant with me. So, you know, it's it's I I have I have a healthy dose of respect for the hippie generation. But that's not really <laughs> You know, 2001 is not the time when they're, they're all, that generation is all about sending their sons and daughters to war though. Well, think about it. Like our parents' generation is the Vietnam generation somewhere within that, that big, you know, span of time in which we were involved in Vietnam. Um, so, you know, my, bro my mom had like four of her brothers in Vietnam in one year. You know, because she grew she grew up in a very poor farm family, and that's what you did. You know, you didn't have an education deferment or bone spurs. You know, so I mean that you served. That was the expectation. I think our civic expectation is that you served in the military, especially during a time of war. Um, but you you especially did that if you didn't have any other options. And I, I think that's interesting about what our generation is is really you know transforming the military and the perception of being a service member is that you and I had other options. I mean, you think about all the other people that we served with, we had other options. You don't join the military because you don't. Um, so I think that's that's a little bit of the shift that's happened. Well, before, you know, you you enlisted with your four-year degree, by the way, so did I. Awesome. And part of the, the big reason why I enlisted is because I, I spent two years trying to figure out how to become an officer, <laughs> first in the Marine Corps and then in the Army. And the line was out the door a mile long, every, everywhere. Mm -hmm. Everyone wanted to serve. And it wasn't because the economy sucked, okay? You know, if you're right. out there being skeptical, like, oh, but the economy was, no, no, no. <laughs> it, there, it was overwhelming amount, an overwhelming amount of people who just wanted to serve. And there was this call to arms, but there was a lot, there's a call to a lot of, a lot of various positions. I mean, from other places that I considered, you know, son of a almost hippie anyway. I mean, the Peace Corps, Teach for America, all that stuff. I mean, it was all on the table for me as well. And the military, just like you, I was, I was mad. Yeah. And so my parents were not thrilled when they found out that I was enlisting. What drove you to say I'm enlisting? So I wanted to enlist. Um, well, number one, it made sense because I could choose the type of job. Um, when you go in as an officer, they typically choose the branch that you will serve as an officer. Um, so I didn't like that at all. And I always knew that once I got in enlisted, I'd ha always have the opportunity to become an officer, right? And number two, it just made sense that if you want to know how to lead, you have to learn how to follow. And I felt that there was so much to learn by walking in and, and taking the trash out. 
And then, oh, by the way, I mean, I had PFCs and specialists that were making decisions that were, you know, strategic decisions on the battlefield. So it's not like they didn't have influence um, once we were in combat or here stateside. So that's the thing about being enlisted that I think it's overshadowed a lot is that you have so much influence to make amazing, dramatic change. And what a striking difference from the Vietnam era that you and Jason, I, I know, researched this and you you weighed the, you know, the pros and cons of of one route versus the other. I mean, this wasn't this this was not as nuanced back in the day, right? This is this is a whole different generation of people who are saying, how can I best serve my country? And actually looking at your own skill sets and saying, I, this is how I best want to apply them. And, and you had options, like you said, before you to do that. I think that's just a huge difference. Absolutely. And, you know, I wish if I was that same age today, I would be so excited and I would have chose the route Jason chose. <laughs> but I didn't have that option 20 years ago. So I was like, gosh, you know, I want to be at the tip of the spear. I want to be right on those front lines, which I, I, you know, my definition of front lines was totally different from, you know, pre-military to actually when I got there. Um, but I, I just wanted to be part of special operations. I wanted to be out front. I wanted to fight. Um, and I wanted to use everything. Like I said, my mind, my emotions, my body, I wanted it all to come to, you know, in synergy and attack, so to speak. So, you know, what can a woman do within special operations? You know, it's normally intelligence um, or it's this thing called information operations. So I started looking down those those lanes of how I could be in that that mission set. Uh, yeah, it's unfortunate that it wasn't, you know, today, right? And you could you didn't have those options available, but a internal optimist that I am, I, I like to think that you helped pave the way, right? You are part of those pioneers that have allowed the women in special operations today, you know, the work that you did and the colleagues there. So, you know, thank you for that. Well, thank you for saying that. And I have to, I can't accept that compliment without complimenting the special forces community, because especially on my second tour in Afghanistan, it was the special forces teams that immediately reached out and said, hey, do you have female interrogators? Can I take them on my mission? Can they come and sit in the booth and interrogate some of our folks? Because, oh, by the way, you know, on this very prohibitive Middle Eastern culture, men can't talk to women, you know, even if we're using interpreters. So having women out there was a force multiplier. So it, it all came together in the end, which was really cool. And I was doing the job that I dreamed of that I didn't even know I was going to be able to do it. So we're, we're definitely going to talk about special forces on your second deployment to jump very briefly to that. I mean, special forces guys are by nature problem solvers. That's really what we are, professional problem solvers. And let's say you go to a place where women have to talk to women. Guess what? If you don't have women, you're, you're at a deficiency. So you're going to figure out a way. And one of the, the special operations forces truths is most operations, most soft operations re require non-soft support. So most special operations missions require non-special operations support. And, you know, whether it's male, female, young, old, black, white, whatever, I mean, you want to do whatever, whatever it is to, to achieve your mission. So that requires diversity. Yeah, absolutely. And Jason, to what you're saying, I mean, that's exactly it. You know, a lot of times I'd hear people say, well, are we setting women up for failure if we open all positions to them? But the way you need to look at it, if you are truly a warrior, is we need to ask, are we setting our mission up for failure if it is performed without women? You know, because it's always mission first, people always. 
And so, you know, that's how we operate as a, as a military and, a, and armed forces. We've always done that. You can look throughout all the wars, women, you know, the Navajo code talkers, the Tuskegee Airmen. The OSS, you know, the yeah. glorious amateurs of the OSS. <laughs> so let's, exactly. let's, let's go back though. And, and let's, Talk about what your enlistment process was like. I mean, not, not the nuts and bolts so much as the, the big memories that stuck with you in terms of how you were prepared to deploy. Oh my gosh, I had good NCOs. Um, it all came down to my NCOs because, you know, I, I didn't get much interaction with officers, um, especially because I was in E4. So it was all my NCOs. You know, everyone always says, oh, NCOs are the, the backbone of the military. No, really. <laughs> you know, I mean, they are the backbone to establishing all the young leaders, you know, and so thank God I had good NCOs. You know, my book kind of is chronological and it talks about my time enlisted in the very beginning, my first tour in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. And it talks about some of those NCOs that really helped me understand what it meant to be, a, you know, how to follow, how to lead. And, um, and I think one of the, you know, the epiphanies was, you know, you don't have to have a title to be a leader. And in fact, not all people with titles are leaders. Um, so your pursuit in life isn't so much about, you know, your title, you know, this is what I do. It was just eye-opening for me. And, and thank God I had NCOs. So war is obviously a really challenging place for everyone. We all have to learn how to cope with the situation at hand and mission first people always. I, I love that. What were in your training process before you go, what were some of the, the biggest challenges or obstacles that you had to overcome? You, you, you detail several that were specific to being a woman. I, I mean, take your pick, right? <laughs> Seriously, Jason, those were my biggest challenges is the fact that I was a girl, right? I mean, I, I was totally proficient on my, my equipment, my weapons. I was physically fit. My mind was exactly you know, where it needed to be. I knew my MOS inside and out and I was ready to go. But it was just little things like I was the only girl or female, as we say in the military, that was part of this activated reserve unit. And so it was like, oh, well, where is she going to sleep? <laughs> so we have to get different places, you know, wait, wait, bathrooms, you know, and it was all these little things that, you know, so early on post 9-11, it was like, oh my gosh, well, how do we do this? But gosh, by the time I'm on my second tour in 09 through 2010, you know, the bathroom's got a flip sign and you flip it over, men or female, easy, keep going, you know, <laughs> we just were, you know, in our own way, I think, as a military, because we didn't know how to do that yet. And, and we learned quickly. I'll give us credit for that. And I get the impression you weren't asking for these compensations. It was no. the military that, or, or, you know, the, the other people around you that were uncomfortable with it. You were fine with it. You, this is well, what you signed up for. I, I come from a very large family. And of that large family, I have five brothers. So I'm like, really? Boys? Got it. Let's go. You know, <laughs> like, I, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. I've always been an athlete. Um, so I've always been on sports teams. And, you know, I mean, so I just, you know, I, it was the military that, again, you know, they, they just didn't know how to do it right away. But we definitely figured it out by the time, especially I, I, I would say we figured it out by 09, 2010. So what helped you thrive then? Is it your, all your brothers? I mean, growing up, I mean, our, our daughter, she watches our two boys. They just beat each other's ass all day long, right? I mean, they're just rolling around. I mean, it's just, you know, occasionally there's some crossfire. It's, 
you know, and they're three and five. It's just, this is never going to stop. I mean, she's just around it all the time. Um, she's not the type who maybe jumps in. Maybe you were, I don't know. Well, if I did jump in, I'll tell you this, I got a few bruises along the way, um, which is not bad. Um, I, I don't know, you know, I gotta tell you, Jason, no one's ever asked me that question. I, I really appreciate that. Um, and by instinct, I, I want to just answer and say, you know, my parents, you know, like I said, we grew up in a big family. Everyone had a job. Everyone was, you know, we were a team. Um, everyone was helping. If you needed the salt and pepper, you had to sound off and raise your voice. Otherwise, it was never going to be passed across the table. So I learned to speak up early. Um, but I think also, too, just because my parents have that solid blue collar, you know, the work ethic and, you know, nothing's given to you for free, you know, and and my parents pushed, I, I think, very early on, you know, don't ask why, but also ask why not, you know, why not you? Um, and so they always made me believe I could do and be anything. And so I think that's what was early on. My fire was, was, was set. And, and how big was your family? How many siblings are we talking about? I have eight brothers and sisters. So you're one of nine and where are you in, in the mix? I'm perfectly in the middle and very well adjusted. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I I think it's interesting. Yeah. You can operate as a special forces, a team with those numbers. I mean, I know, that's, right? that's amazing. Just a big, I mean, my parents both raised in Midwest and on farms. So during that generation, they had big farm families and my parents kind of continued it on and, um, you know, they wanted a big family. And so, you know, gosh, let me tell you in the eighties and nineties, I was like, God, why do you guys have so many kids? This is embarrassing. You know, <laughs> we should have half this many, you know, but I, I appreciate it because it's just given me a lot of perspective and it's different. So those are the numbers. <laughs> And so what else in terms of, look, our daughter's eight, we talk about these kinds of things. She's into all sorts of things with, with art and music and generally is, a, is an excellent peacekeeper of, of her brothers, right? No. What are the things that helped you develop a confidence that no doubt you had to draw upon so much in your, your enlistment, your training, your, your deployments? The key word that you said is confidence. Um, And I think that because I failed early, failed quickly, growing up with being around brothers and falling off bikes when they could do things that I couldn't, um, and they would just like, get up, come on, let's go again. We're still going down there to the park, you know? So you'd have scraped up knees and you'd be riding on your bike anyways. You know, I think that, you know, failing early, failing quickly even as a little person. And it's so funny because when I have, you know, parent-teacher conferences with my now eight-year-old son, most important thing is always safety, but next is confidence. You know, I just want him to be confident and have confidence. You know, I really like the part where you went to the bathroom in basic training alone without your battle buddy. And then you were smiling when you were talking to the drill sergeant and he, he had a few choice words for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read what he, what he said to you. Nothing is funny about this situation. I need to re-educate your civilian mind to think like a soldier and know that you do not forget. You do not forget your battle buddy. If you are not disciplined in small things, you will not be disciplined in big things, like not forgetting your rifle somewhere later on. Oh, and what I meant by one of those types of females is that you have a decision to make right now. There are three types of females in the army. Your smiling at me only makes me think you are hitting on me. So I know what option you chose. And you got really pissed at him. 
Um, and I think you used it positively then, but I wonder what is it like, you know, looking back, what, what do you think about that situation? Cause you know, I've had, I've had people try to put me in a box too. When I was younger, sometimes it ages well. And you're like, wow, it was good for me to get that. And I get it now. I'm not going to be like them, but I, I understand that. And I'm going to use that to my, my advantage. And then sometimes you're like, wow, I'm glad that didn't deter me sort of thing. Where, where does that fall for you? Well, looking back, I mean, sometimes I think, oh my gosh, you know, why in the world was I so audacious to think that, you know, I could decide for me or this or that, you know, because people, I mean, there's so much to time and time and grade, right? When you have life and season. And so, yeah, that, that story you're describing early on in my book was a drill sergeant. And, and, you know, it is often, you know, the perception there's three types of women in the military. And I know which one you're going to be because I was smiling because I, I smile. I'm sorry. It's, but let me tell you, I have done so many pushups in my life because of this smile. Um, and it, it's good because I, I really learned in those, you know, those confrontations early on in the military you know, I will define me. No one else is going to define me. And that's going to be through my actions. And people see a light. You don't hear one. So how I walk in this world is going to tell the story. And so if I want to break out of those three types of women, you know, that are supposedly in the army, well, here we go. You know, so it was just the audacity to think, well, why not? Again, why not? Why not me to say this is who I'll be? But I really, I respected that he was just trying to toughen me up. You know, and he was really preparing me for what the military was like then. I've always had a pretty quick and ready smile, and which is can be scary when I'm mad, right? <laughs> but um, but my soldier said later on, you know, when we were actually in Afghanistan, he he we were talking about something, and he, the smile thing came up, and he said, you know, ma'am, you know, you're just like every other mammal. You show your teeth before you bite, you know. And what do you do when you smile? You're showing your teeth, you know. <laughs> and so. I, you know, I, I think it was just the audacity and the ignorance of not knowing, not knowing what's out there, but still just, you know, jumping. Well, it's also you, you thought you could have a conversation with your drill sergeant. I mean, oh, it's, it's yeah. kind of one of those. I mean, I, I think I was probably told I was one of three kinds of females too, at one point, you know, <laughs> like it spares no one. And, uh, you know, right. from, from an inch away <laughs> from my face or closer, I, I think I was called every name in the book. And yes. the, the big takeaways for me in, in terms of the NCOs that trained me were, I was never afraid of pushups. Well, I mean, you don't want to do them all the time. Penalties, if you earn them, fine, right? The ones who are the hardest on you, that's never a problem, right? If their intentions are to, are to train you. Right. If their intentions are are good. And sometimes those lessons take a little bit longer to sink in. Sometimes, you know, the army is a gruff place from time to time. It promotes a lot of rolling around in the dirt and get and, and just getting down with it. And the kind of person that's attracted to that is oftentimes a little rough around the edges and the dirt can soften it a little bit, but not all the way, you know? And so you've got a lot of, of, of people out there with with a gruff style and you can learn a ton from them too. Sometimes they're drill sergeants telling you, <laughs> telling, telling you how to get smarter. Right. Right. But think about it. I mean, the military, you have to have no nonsense. I mean, cause you have everything on the line, you know, you are going, it comes down to people's lives, you know, so there's, there's no room for error. So I appreciate that is kind of the a base aspect of what the culture is like is to be very straightforward, in your face, direct. 
I mean, it, it's so funny. I, I, I was this way anyways, early on, you know, my husband, he jokes with me. He's like, I don't think you understand the difference between passive verbs and active verbs. Cause I'll just say, Hey, grab the, grab the trash on your way out. Instead of saying, Hey, would you please grab the trash on your way out? Like I'm not a passive verb kind of person. I've never, I mean, since I was a little girl, I've always been, you know, grab it, you know, grab the trash, you know? And so I think that felt natural to me in the military, just that active, assertive. But then I've also learned that in the military, some of the most important decisions you make are the ones you don't make. And you, and you got to let things kind of shake out sometimes and, and you don't jump to decisions. So I learned that in, in the military too, my leadership lessons. The operational maturity, oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. The tactical pause, let the situation develop, all tactical that kind of stuff. Pause. Yes. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about, you know, lessons learned as uh, an enlisted soldier. Uh, I, again, it's just nobody is too good to enlist. That's my basic premise about enlisting in the army is there's not a single person out there that's too good for that. I agree. You know, you learn so much. Like, I mean, <laughs> there's no sleep and you're cleaning all the time and you've got the worst tasks ever. And it's just, there's a lot of humility and you're in it together. And, you know, you learn good leaders who share information with you because being, you know, Bravo right rifle out on the far end of the the formation or whatever, and you have no idea what's going on or cleaning your boots for a thousand hours and you have no idea what's going on. It just, that's not fun. But as you progress, the, the great leaders will keep you in the loop a little bit more, right? Absolutely. And what were, what were the, the big takeaways from your first deployment, your enlistment, and then as you transition to the, to the O or the officer side? Well, you totally teed that up for me because it was that mushroom aspect. You know, when I was enlisted, you know, we, we, you've probably heard this in the military, you know, like I feel like a mushroom, right? You know, and I, I'll let everyone else in the military just kind of, you know, chuckle. Everyone else that's non-military has to look it up. But um, being young enlisted, I, I felt like I didn't have the information and, and didn't, you know, from the top down, I wasn't, I didn't get the guidance, you know, and the commander sets the tone and the commander has to set the vision. and then you know, how well that is executed is by communications. And if you are not actively communicating, and so for me, that was one of the biggest lessons that I took away being enlisted is that when I become an officer someday, you better believe I'm going to have my NCOs in and they're going to be, you know, right next to me all the time. And I'm always going to get information out to them, impromptu huddles or whatever, just trying to get information out, making sure and open door policy all the time with everyone in the command group. So people could always come and ask, you know, we had information boards set up. I mean, it just, just not feeling like, you know, what's going on is not a good feeling, but especially not a good feeling when in a combat zone. Um, so that was a big takeaway was to take away that mushroom culture, so to speak. All right. So let's, let's transition to what are the differences, if any, so you're a female soldier on the, on the East side, you're a female soldier on the O side you're not just dealing with life on a military base. Nobody wants to read that book, right? Like, <laughs> oh, I was at Fort Bragg for whatever. I was at, you know, wherever. Nobody cares, right? Where did you right. go and, and what did you do? What were the experiences? What were the lessons learned? What were the people like? What were the highs? What were the lows? It was a lot easier, you know, later on as an officer, but I think that's only because as a female in the military, because I was married. Um, I, was, I wasn't married when I was enlisted. And that was a big difference between being enlisted those first two years versus when I was an officer 
I was learning from him every single day I was in the military. And my kit was the best kit because I had you know, this former armored ranger, this special operations guy that was really setting me up for success on how, how it needed to look tactically, you know? And so I'm going to go back and look at all your pictures and I'm going to judge both of you if anything's oh. wrong at all. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> you know, I, I will say, cause I, was, I, I always love looking back at, at pictures of other people's deployments. Just one of those things, right? Cause I'm, I don't have enough. It, it was before, you know, there were cell phones everywhere all over the place. It was just a little bit b- before that. How many awesome pictures have been, if not ruined, severely diminished by how horrible those ACU uniforms were, though? <laughs> like, can we just get that out there now? That yeah, the- let's get some big questions here. Yeah. Well, that's the funny thing is, I I looked through my military, my time in the military, those ten years. You know, I think I had gosh, five, six different uniforms. I had DCUs, I had the ACUs. I I mean. It's just nuts, but that was just a testament to how much the military was changing and how we were rapidly, you know, trying to respond to the current operations. Okay, so let's dive into Afghanistan now. Let's talk about what the role of intelligence gathering and how you all were were operating. There's no such thing as a safe road over there. There, there's no such thing as like going to the mall and leaving your your weapon behind. I mean, obviously, right? This is Afghanistan. So, d- right. give us give us some of the what was the mission set and what were the the atmospherics on the ground? Right. So I was over there in 09 through 2010, and I was in command of a full spectrum intelligence operation company. So my guys and gals, they were doing SIGINT collection, they were doing counterintelligence, they were doing interrogations. Um, they were doing the full spectrum of, of how we collect. And so it was just the most fascinating mission set because normally you get very, you're only doing this or you're only doing that, but it was really great to see it all come together. And so it was a very dynamic company element because I was also in command of the support element, the, the typical HHC. There was so much going on. It was insane. So what's the battle rhythm? I mean, how do you, how do you succeed in, in that role in a, in a combat zone? We've talked a little bit about the unique role of women. I mean, the unique role of 50% of the population is that you're the only ones who are authorized to talk to the 50% of the population who is also females in Afghanistan. What, what, just what's the battle rhythm daily life to how much are you interacting with villagers? How do you succeed? So for my part, you know, my battle rhythm was about battlefield rotations. You know, I wasn't so much doing the mission as I was managing it and leading it and making sure everyone had what they needed. Um, so I had, I relied on my NCOs and my team leaders. And a lot of my team leaders were actually warrant officers and young officers as well. And so, you know, I, I was constantly doing those, what we refer to as the battlefield rotations, right? Um, so I was on the road a lot or jumping in a rotary uh, rotary ring to jump, you know, get out to the different fobs um, and cops where my teams were spread out across Eastern Afghanistan. Because for intelligence, you know, um, most people don't understand. It's not like we're a maneuver element where we have all of our, you know, when we leave the wire or the base, we have our own vehicles, we have all the, you know, it's not like that. Intelligence is a support um, asset. So we are normally attached or with that maneuver element. So my guys, like I said, they were spread out supporting various teams, whether it was SF teams or if it was the 82nd, the 101st, it was wild, wild west. And it was a lot of coordination. 
Yeah, that's that was the word that was coming to mind. You're dealing with your own team and then you're dealing with other countries' teams on the ground and, you know, all sorts of, the, you know, the locals. Yeah. It sounds like you probably had so many meetings. <laughs> you know what? Emily, you, you really hit on something too, because it was, you know, we had coalition partners. So, you know, two of the areas of operations where I had several teams were owned by the Kiwis, the New Zealanders, and then the French. Um, so literally, you know, I was on, you know, a convoy at one point where it's like all French types of equipment, all French soldiers, and like, we're the one American you know, MRAP, you know, with our, you know, we were like, gosh, our radios aren't even talking to their radios. We're like doing hand signals out the turret, you know, in the middle of the night. It was ridiculous. So, it, and I think this goes back to the, you know, thank God I was raised in that big family because it was that coordination of like, you want the salt and pepper, you know, pass across the table, you know. Um, and so for me, it just felt natural um, having all those moving parts. It was something very natural to me. And I, I'm a very relational person. So, you know, on my part, what I think Jason, you'd ask, how are you successful? I had to make sure, you know, I was talking with my peers um, and my counterparts, you know, so that my, my teams had what they needed and were best supporting those different teams and maneuver elements. Marjorie, I'm going to ask you a personal question here. So I love personal questions, please. (laughs) <laughs> you're you're this friendly, smiley American, right? And you're having yeah. to do, you know, work with all these coalition forces who they have prejudices and their own thoughts on our culture and what that means. How do you establish your authority when when you don't have a lot of time to, you know, you don't have weeks to develop a relationship? You have to get in and say, hey, you know, give me this the effing salt and pepper because <laughs> my <laughs> my team needs it now. Like tell tell us like how you did that. Well, I'd say one reputation precedes you. So I had a solid reputation. My guys trusted me, all of my my NCOs, and they backed me up. They knew I I had their back and they had my back. And we had that built that quickly right away um, before we went downrange. And then when we were downrange, that only solidified. So, you know, you have the the backing and your reputation precedes you. Um, But I think what also helps is, you know, I can be very direct and smile when I'm very direct. Um, And it's so funny because, you know, I'm that back to that drill sergeant early on in my time, just right at the beginning of my military career, you know, if you're smiling at me, that means you're trying to hit on me or, you know, I don't know, saying something of that nature. Well, not exactly. You know, <laughs> you know, people knew, you know, you have solid reputation. You've got the trust with your team leaders that are that are holding you up and you're holding them up. Yeah, you've got to be direct, you know, as far as, yes, I'm smiling and I'm, I'm a woman. But I think all of that really worked to my favor. I love it. It's like you get to redefine. What, what that smile means. I try. <laughs> I try. Yeah. And it's like, it, it doesn't have to mean, it doesn't have to be just one dimensional. You know, it, it means, right. you know, I mean business. I'm here. My team supports me. You saw, you know, my reputation precedes me. I have the hall file. Let's work together. Let's get down to business. Right. And we can still smile <laughs> about it. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's talk about what was the hardest part? What was the low? Oh, uh, losing Coughlin. Um, so Chris Coughlin, we lost him the first couple of weeks into country. And, and as you guys know, from, you know, just being in the military and being so close with the military family, the highest probability of losing someone normally is the beginning of a deployment or the end of the deployment, right? Because you're new, you're learning TTPs and all that stuff. Or at the end, you're just tired. You kind of lose, you know, 
some things start slipping or whatnot sometimes. And, and also too, it's all about the timeline of what's going on with operations and activity over there. But um, that was the low, um, was organizing for and managing for my soldiers to carry that flag draped coffin of our heroes final flight home and doing that, you know, rendering that four second delayed salute, you know, and that happened two and a half weeks into that year deployment. We were there in Afghanistan. So it set the tone very quickly. We lost him. Um, and this was for him. So what happened to morale? Like what did that happen to your personal morale? What was that moment like for you and how did you kind of respond or pull yourself back together? So personally, um, you know, especially as a woman, you're like, oh, I can't cry in front of people, right? Like you can't cry. But, you know, for me, it was, I, I cried with my peer behind closed doors. So I was still doing the RIP process, uh, the relief in place with the unit we were replacing when we lost Chris. And so, you know, George was my my counterpart and my peer. And he, a lot of his guys, you know, he, he brought them all home, but several of them were going home with, with Purple Hearts and he had a really tough tour Um, so he had, you know, a lot of perspective, obviously in seasoning, but he was there for me to lean on and to really, you know, take that deep breath with, so I could be out and be composed. But, but what I will say is when I was in front of my soldiers, it has to be authentic. Yeah, of course, every single one of us had tears streaming down our faces when we're rendering that salute and watching that C-17 fly home on that ramp ceremony. You know, that's, that's natural. That's human. You know, that's how we're supposed to respond. Um, you know, so just being authentic, that and natural when, when you do have to lead through crisis and, and loss. So what were the, what were the highs? Because look, look, it's, it's a full spectrum life. You live 10 lives in, in a year over well, there, you know? Totally. Totally. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, the highs were every single day, it seemed like, because my, you know, over that time frame of about a, you know, that year, we did, gosh, over 200 different types of intelligence missions. I mean, we were, we were constantly doing stuff. And so, you know, it was watching Sergeant Groff do an awesome interrogation and get information about X that led us to the IED, you know, that troops didn't drive over later that day, or it was, you know, seeing Ashley do the same thing in another interrogation. One of my other sergeants, you know, through his hard work and his CI and, and interrogation skills, he was able to get an RP, um, a service to air missile off the battlefield. I mean, it was just phenomenal, like watching my my troops do these amazing things that was that was making a difference as far as saving lives, but they were also changing the landscape of what it looked like over there culturally because they were doing those meetings and and interacting with the people. And it, it was like life in technicolor. It was, everything was so vibrant and every day was just, you know, so intense. So of course I gravitated toward a lot of the special forces stories in your book. You know, I could, I could relate to just your description of, of those guys and th- their desire to have you as part of their team. That the, the way that you describe them is, is exactly how we hope that our community represents uh, our community for lack of a better way to say it. So how does it work? Right? So you've got someone out there listening to this saying, you know, Oh, I want to go into intelligence or I want to go in and I want to do what Marjorie did over, over there. Right? So many people come in contact with special forces because they're pulling from resources all over the place. So just 
right. how does that work that you all get attached or a team gets attached and then you're, you're in support of their mission or their operation? Oh my gosh. Again, relationships and just going, I, one of the ODA commanders, you know, that I was over there with in 09 through 2010, like he, it wasn't his first rodeo, clearly, <laughs> you know, and he, as soon as he knew a new um, intelligence, you know, unit was coming in, his first question was, we need to get some more women out here because we can't talk to half the population. None of my guys can talk to them and I know they have information. So he came and found me you know, first couple of weeks in country. And he's like, Hey, do you have female interrogators? You know, I'm like, yes, I do. Let's get going. You know? Um, but, and that's the story that you probably enjoyed. That's the big deal and the big deal, right? <laughs> yes, it is. Special forces guys are a big deal. It is all true. Yeah. Fuller <laughs> stories. Yeah. I mean, you know, those, those stories are still circulating the, the special forces community, how you, you saw one of the guys walk out of the, the shower and it was a big deal. L <laughs> later recounted by you as a big deal. <laughs> right. you, have to, you have to read the book to, in that chapter to really get the, the juice on that one. <laughs> like I said, that, that team has successfully represented all Special Forces soldiers well. <laughs> Perfect. I know it. It was so funny. Um, and, you know, that's what I just, I so enjoyed about working with the Special Forces community is, is again, that authenticity and, um, you know, and like you said early on problem solvers, you know, I mean, they're looking at mission first and then how do, how do we get there from, you know, that's where we're measuring our success. Um, not if, Oh, do we have this kind of person or that kind of person? You know, it's just, it's so outside the box thinking. And I think that's how I fit well in the military. You know, I'm a very organized, focused, structured kind of half German shepherd kind of person, but I'm a lab, you know, I, I want to play and run around and, you know, I want to challenge, you know, where you tell me I can go and can't go. So, you know, that part of my nature fit well within the special operations and the intel side of the military. And, and to what you were saying, you know, if people are thinking, gosh, I want to do that, I want to, you know, well, do it, do it now, go, go to, go tonight, start looking it up on the internet, talk to people. I mean, you don't have time to like let your life go by and I, you don't want to regret not doing it. So find a way and, and, and absolutely encourage your girls. You know, I don't think we tell our girls often enough that, you know, they have a role to play. They have talents that are absolutely needed in the military, not just the Peace Corps, Teach for America or everywhere else. But, you know, we need more women in the military. So as you, as you kind of take a step back and you have a decade now, to kind of really reflect even more because th these are the questions I ask myself. So sometimes, you know, I find someone with a similar story and I'm like, Oh, well, what do they think about theirs? And I'm so proud of, of my service and the guys that I served with. The, the question I would ask you is, is, was it worth it? There's lots of ways to serve. You go and you fight a couple wars and you, you see pretty horrific things. W was it right. worth it? You know, so um, there are many ways to serve. Um, and that's what I do talk about towards the end of my book. Because if you're 40 years old and you're listening to this, you're like, well, geez, I can't go in the military, right? <laughs> well, guess what? There are other ways for you to serve. But to your question, which I think is one of the most important questions, was it worth it? You know, early on when my book came out, I was asked to be on a panel with the Council on Foreign Relations. And I was so excited because I was going to be on the panel with people that I deeply admire, like Sebastian Younger, who wrote Tribe, and Gil Lamon, who wrote Ashley's War. 
And so I'm, you know, filing on, if you can imagine, filing on to my Southwest flight, heading out to DC for this panel. I think I was group A that time, so I could actually get the window seat. So I'm sitting on, you know, the window seat and I'm thinking to myself, this is going to be so exciting to be on this panel and talk about all these issues that we're talking about and things we care about, especially with, you know, the people that are on the panel as well. And I'm thinking, what's going to be the most memorable part of this trip? And it actually happened on that flight, um, I had a World War II veteran sit right next to me. And, you know, he had the hat. So I knew automatically he's a World War II veteran and he was going to DC as well. And so what do veterans do once we like realize we're veterans, we start talking and we start doing the connect the dots, right? So we're doing that. And halfway through the flight, you know, he leans in, he's like, can I ask you this personal question? And you know, of course you want to, you know, answer any question to a World War II veteran. What do you say? And I said, yes, sir, of course. And he asked what you just asked, Jason. He said, was there anything over there worth fighting for? And, you know, I knew that question was going to come at me quickly when my book came out. And I was still kind of sorting through how I wanted to answer that and how I felt that. Um, but I think inspired by the, the conversation I was having with that World War II veteran, my answer then, as it is today, is yes, it was worth fighting for because of the men and women that were to my left and to my right. Yeah. So so take that a step deeper. I, I read that. That's my default answer too, right? I mean, yes. there there's lots of things that you can go do. You could have gone on humanitarian missions. And th this is obviously... When, when you're a, a captain or a staff sergeant or whatever in the army, you know, they, they tell you where to go and that's where you go, basically. It's not like you were responsible for for launching the war, which into Afghanistan, I mean, I, I signed up to go to Afghanistan and didn't get to go, right? Yeah. But was it worth it 10 years later to, to be there in, in Afghanistan and now we're at almost 20 years later, right? And we still have, I mean, what is worth it? Because I get it. I mean, that's the big conundrum about war is that it is so rewarding in, in some yeah. sick way. It's so rewarding, but, right. but, it's like, but is it worth it? Well, so I'll, I'll answer to you to this question to this. You know, when you look at the front cover of my book, um, it's a picture of actually me and I'm holding the hand of a little girl, um, a little Afghan girl that lived in the caves in Bamiyan province where the Buddhas used to be before the Taliban just destroyed them. And that little girl today can go to school. Rewind, you know, before we were there, girls couldn't go to school. Um, so we know how that changes the trajectory of a culture, of an economy, of a society, when you are allowed to put girls in school. So that one little thing is already having a ripple effect. You know, when I talked with, you know, a, a Vietnam veteran over this last year that I was connected with, you know, I asked him, how does he feel about was his, was it worth it for him? And he said, Marjorie, he goes, look at the tag on your, on your shirts. If they ever say made in Vietnam, he goes, you better believe it was worth it because we just built an economy that is now a world economy that is becoming more of a world partner that is not confrontational and going down, you know, and I it just totally changed my perspective. Like one day we're going to look at shirts and we're going to pull that tag out. And if it says made in Afghanistan, that's a measure of success because that means their economy has grown to a point in which they're not, they're internationally exporting. I mean, it's just those little things can answer that question for us, but we can't mess up the end game. And that's where we're at right now, which, which is where I'm holding my breath. 
you know, because it's, it's frustrating seeing what's going on right now. So it's, it's certainly nuanced, right? I mean, there, there's a lot of, because for me, the other thing that I think about, and I don't really want to trade the losses in Vietnam for a shirt that's made in Vietnam. Not that I'm, not that that's what you're, you're saying. I just, I agree that there, there was too much blood and treasure lost in Vietnam and there's always too much blood and treasure. Absolutely. That, that's, that's what we have to wrestle with. That's what makes the, the coming home kind of hard. Yeah. The, the call to service that you're very much spearheading. The part that I've thought a lot about is just the fact that we owe those of us who have gone and, and come back, we owe, it's not just the school that's in Afghanistan. It's the fact that you were able to make a difference while you were there and you saw what that felt like. And hopefully other organizations can come along and support that into the future when, when the wars are, are over from, from our vantage point. But it's, it's what we learned and, and that experience that we bring back to, to our society that hopefully will, uh, hope's not really a strategy, I get it, but <laughs> will will make us smarter from generation to generation. So that's the last part of my book. Um, and it's there's a section titled, Service is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. Um, and that's a spinoff of a... Um, of a book that that's very popular that's called War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning. But when, it, when you get down to it, you know, when we serve in, in any capacity in which you are finding ways to, to be selfless and help others, that's changing us as human beings. And that has the ripple effect that we need as a society. Um, and so, you know, I think the, the, the biggest thing, the things that we overlook all the time about, you know, not having national service in our country because it's only been since 73 since we've not had some form of a national service program, which is when you look at the span of our 240-ish year history as a nation, that's only a sliver, you know, so that we've not had some form of a national service program. So we need a national service program because, oh, by the way, you know, people who serve tend to come back and start businesses. They start charities. They become a force multiplier in our economy, in our culture. So that is, that's the kind of influence you want to have in the economy and the culture of people who have, who have served and been selfless and helped others. So what's the flip side to that? Because there's a stigma out there and, and we're, we're on the team together fighting to, to destigmatize the effects of war. There, there are some realities though. The transition's not perfect. It's not easy. No, it's not. So what's, what's your reality on post-traumatic stress and veteran transition and, and what do we need and what do we have and where are we? So I think because we have the smallest number in our history since 9-11 that have served in uniform, it's less than 1%. Um, we have so few people and we, we are so misunderstood what people think the military is. They're, they're making these, you know, coming to these conclusions based off of movies or a lot of the negative stories that you hear, you know, you get a lot of runtime and a lot of press for the negative stories. That's just how it works. So you're going to, you know, have more, you know, kind of going on the media waves with the PTS or the suicides or, you know, fill in the blank. You know, we're not hearing enough about how veterans are starting businesses and charities. And, you know, I mean, you can look at that. There's actually a veteran health index that's, that's performed every year. And they do an assessment of veterans in their communities back home. And veterans, I mean, 
by and large, they, they vote more often, they give more money to charities, they are more likely to show up at public meetings. I mean, they become more active citizens. And that's what the story that we're not hearing about what veterans do when they come back home. And not just veterans, I want to extend that out to people who serve. How is the conversation different amongst veterans versus how we should talk about this outside of our, our own community, if at all? Yeah. I mean, how do we address the realities of someone gets out of the military and is going through a rough time and, and that's a reality? I mean, mm-hmm. is this the case? Because I've seen this so often where someone's going through a rough time and the only people that they feel most comfortable around are, are veterans. Right. And yet we have to message this to the American population. So I'm going to I'm going to just turn this around and I'm going to just point a finger right back at you. I'm we can do this better by doing more go ruck events. Um because go ruck events are bringing veterans and non-veterans together. Um and that is powerful. Um we have the RWBs of the world, the team red white and blues. We've got team Rubicon where you know they're they're responding to natural disasters and they're 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 being, you know, put on a team with a veteran and a non-veteran. Uh, so that's what we need more of. We need more situations like that where we have, you know, people together work, solving a problem together. Um, I think that's that's part of helping change this narrative. It, it's you're right. It's it's basically you need this kind of more national. You need to increase that percentage, right? Yeah. More people need to understand what that's what service means. And, and to go through the highs and lows of it and come out on the other side, being a better citizen, being a better version of themselves. And that, you know, there are so many ways to do that. I mean, I didn't enlist, but I, I did a different kind of service, you know, like volunteer service abroad. And it felt, it felt similar. You know, I felt like I did all these odd jobs and I was working around the clock and had to earn my way, you know, so it's similar. I didn't have as much freedom as I did in the United States. And then you go on and you take that and you apply it in a different way. And I love what you said at the beginning. It's like, it's not just a, a one check the box that you do after you graduate college or something. It's like, there's constantly like, what's next? Like, how can I help my community. Like I, I struggle now with, you know, I've got small children, but I have to just find other ways to help my community now. Right. I have to, sometimes it means building, making them into good citizens. Right. That's where I spend a lot of my time, but there's, and there's other ways of teaching them that's, you know, age appropriate about their community and how we can serve. There's all these ways to build these bridges if the goal is to increase the amount of people serving in that servant leadership mentality, that's where we will succeed. Absolutely. You know, I've had people ask me questions like, are you going to expect your son to serve in the military? And no way. I, you know, I, I'm not going to tell him to serve in the military. I don't expect him to serve in the military. I will raise him that I do have the expectation that he will serve. So he needs to figure out how he's going to do that. And, you know, whether that's do something like Teach for America or if he wants to, you know, be a doctor without a border. But he needs to understand that he's got to do something for someone else. And that that and however he does that, he just does it once in those young, formidable years in those early 18 to 20s. 
and it's it's elixir, right? I mean, it, it doesn't leave you. Like you realize once you do it, and you and you're like, gosh, this is very satisfying and fulfilling, and this feels like the best me is when I'm doing things like this, and it stays with you. So speaking of Hank, yes, <laughs> your Hank's struggle with cancer was the inspiration for for writing your book. That's right. You you go into some detail about how the adversity in the military you know, had prepared you for this, you, you and your husband, but it's never anything you can be prepared for. I think everyone can, can, everyone who's a parent can, can certainly relate to that. How is it sort of aged? I mean, he's eight now. It's like, you've got this book, you've got this, these 10 years of great honorable service. You're still smiling. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, if you're, if you're, if you're out there, you can't see it. We can see Marjorie during this and you're still smiling. Does it ever almost feel surreal or like it's someone else's life or, you know, what does it feel like? Oh my gosh. Well, so I just turned 40 this year. And so, so yes, you know, because now I'm like looking back going, wow, I just, I just did 20 years as an adult technically. Right. (laughs) Um, And I, you know, I've seen, I'm so, I'm so grateful for the things I've done, but of course I'm going to go back and say, man, I wish I had a little bit done this or changed this or that, you know, but at some point you just, you got to always be able to go and reflect, but you've got to just be present and look forward. Um, And so for me, it's, you know, and and with Hank, you know, when he was six months old, he was diagnosed with infant cancer. And, and that was a special kind of hell um, that, you know, by that point, I was, I had no plans of, of writing a book. I was still in the army reserve. I was going to stay in the reserves. So they kicked me out when I was 80. I mean, I was just, I was tracking a totally different life. And my life was completely just shredded, just, just shredded into pieces when that happened. Um, because now you're, you're living month to month thinking, am I going to lose this baby? You know, and, and you have this five-year window of like, well, the, he'll be out of the woods if he's five years cancer free, you know? And so luckily we are, we're so grateful, you know, fill it in how you want. I call it God, but we are very blessed that, you know, everything lined up in the way that it did. Um, and the mystery of science and, and cancer and all of that, you know, my son, it never came back and he is now cancer free. He's a cancer survivor. You know, I had someone ask me actually too, like, would you have written the book if you had lost your son? You know, and I'm like, I, you know, I think, yeah, I still would have because I wrote that book because I wanted to capture these lessons on life and service and leadership. And I wanted it to shape the man that I hoped my son would become because he needed to know the special forces sergeant that was just awesome and a big deal, right? He needed to know Ashley and Sergeant Groff and Schmitty and Mac and Vasquez. And I mean, he needed to know these people. And if my son, you know, hadn't made it through and if he didn't get a chance to read those stories, well, someone else deserves to know Mac as well and Schmitty and Vasquez and Schmidt, you know? So I, I believe I still would have written the book. Um, but we can't go back and, you know, Monday morning quarterback much, can we? <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of those, like, let's just count our blessings. And, and we, that's one of those what ifs that we don't have to dwell on, right? I know. I Amen. mean, yeah, th- no offense to the asker. That was kind of a shitty question. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> 
okay. I've, I, I mean, I was, I, you know, my last position in the military, I was surrounded by trained interrogators. They knew how to ask questions. So I got, I, I you know, that's the funny thing. As soon as my book came out and I've, I've, I've done the, the circuit and asked, you know, answered a lot of questions. I don't feel like anyone's ever caught me off guard because like I said, my, my sergeants and my interrogators really set me up, set me up for success in life. <laughs> with their questions. So just to sort of round it out, how do you describe the perspective that you have now from enlisting to being a commander to, to getting out and serving as a, a mom to a son who really needed you? Just the full spectrum, like what's your perspective? I, I feel probably like I'm 60 years old. Maybe I've lived the life of a much older person because I've been through a lot of seasons. And my husband and I, we talk about this all the time. It's like, God, no other shit can happen to us because, oh, my God, we've been through so much, right? Like between all of his combat deployments, he had 17 combat tours total, um, you know, for, for my tours, for our son's cancer. But, but <laughs> the truth of it is there will be more battles. There will absolutely be more. Oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. You know, and I mean, here we are. Hello, pandemic. You know, I mean, I mean, so there's absolutely going to be more bumps in the road for the rest of our lives. We've we've definitely had our our um, our share and more than more than our share. But I just feel like I am more fortified. I'm more resilient. I feel more seasoned. And I just feel like I have a better understanding of, of who I am, who I who I will be and who I you know, what I'll do with my life. And and I, it's just given me a deep reservoir. That's for sure. That's, that's really beautiful. You know, it's true. It's like some, we, we'd say the same thing, you know, we feel like we've been through a lot, you know, divorce, remarriage and, you know, kids and living apart. I mean, nothing like 17 deployments. That's, that's pretty incredible. But, you know, I was reading your book and it's like all those times apart and, you know, dealing with these big life and death problems. Right. And, and yet, you know, here we are sometimes raising kids and I'm like, wow, that I, I can I, can I go back to that life? Just <laughs> It was a little easier than negotiating with my three-year-old, you oh know? So it's not like it get e it gets easier, but the beautiful thing is that we are able to connect with like-minded people like yourself and, and then also, you know, share these experiences with others, be it, you know, over the airwaves or in person, you know, and I think this is kind of a form of service in itself, right? It's this communication. It's this constant yeah. sharing. I mean, sharing and passing down of information, you know, even if it's not always down, it's across, you know, or, you know, to, to, you know, our generation of hippie parents who, 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 you know, are having to deal with this, you know, in a different way out of their control. We, they've got these children that they raised to be very independent and go off and do these things. I mean, I think about that for my own kids doing that. And it, it makes me kind of, you know, get a little scared inside. <laughs> I'm like, I know what I was doing. What, what are they going to do? And, and, and I think about it from a perspective of a parent now. So you're right. The struggles will continue, but in some ways you, you, you have a piece, you know, where you've, you've been through that and you know that you're going to deal with what's given to you. 
Absolutely. I, I love everything that you said. And yes, sometimes I wish I could just go back and be a commander one more day in Afghanistan and again, negotiate with my my little operator. I mean, it is crazy. I mean, and being a parent is the scariest thing in the world. No one tells you how terrifying it is, um, but it is, it is absolutely terrifying. And it is, again, that same little pendulum, you know, it's the most amazing thing as well. Um, Kids are war. That sounds like... <laughs> Kids your next are, not your next book. <laughs> I know, right? That's a good children's book. Yeah. Thanks so much for your your time. I know you got out of some some bedtime duties, so uh, on on that regard, you're welcome. <laughs> I know, right? This is one last night I didn't have to read um, the crayons, um, the crayons and the color box book, and the dinosaurs got out one night, and all those fun books. Oh yes, we <laughs> yeah. have those. But, but before we we do get off, I, I just yeah. want to reiterate, you know, I, I, I tried to flip it around and say, Hey, we need more go rec events, but I'm, I'm serious about that. I mean, what you two are doing is so important. It is, it is always about the people. It's always about the person to your left and to your right. And that's not just in combat that's here at home. And that's a lot of what the stories kind of round out and how they kind of, they evolve in my book is that we still have a mission. Um, and, and we always will, because you know, when we, you were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, transition and how do people understand veterans? Well, it's, I can simplify it. You just need to understand we didn't have a prior job. Our prior job was called an oath. And that's a promise. It's a promise for action and for each other. So once you get that about us, I mean, that and that's, again, why we need a nation that takes an oath to do national service, because we need to be promise keepers. And we still need to keep going. Well, there's a lot of value in honoring service too. I mean, not to just completely debunk this idea of the divide or the one percenters who, who serve in the military, but this idea of how we treat those who serve has evolved so positively and so significantly since Vietnam, which has happened in a very short period of time. And so some things take time. I mean, the big yeah. question I have is, is where's our JFK moment? You know, know. instead of go to the mall to, to support America, how about yeah. go serve America? You know, in, in, instead of just looking so, so much at us as individuals, where's the, where's the look out to us as, as a team, a nation, stuff like that. And, you know, I, I think, I hope it's brewing I think that this frontline generation, as you, as you call it, is, is very much leading the charge on that front. And, and so as we say it at GORUCK, we just hope you join us. This is, this is what we're doing. This is what we're about. Come join us. And that's, Absolutely. we're part of that bigger, broader mo movement. And we're glad to be fighting on the same team with you. You are the frontline generation. Absolutely. <laughs> Yes. You know, I do think that the frontline generation is you, you've you've drawn the line in the sand. And I think, you know, calling it that is is what it is. And, you know, I'm looking to see that continue to grow. Awesome. Well, you know what? One of the last I guess maybe last thought is, you know, I learned in the military change happens for two reasons. Um, it's either, you know, crisis or inspiration. You know, we were under crisis a lot because we had to transform so much as a military to how we, the force we needed to be. Um, but inspiration can also do it. I think we have a crisis right now with what's happening in our world. And it is brewing, Jason. I think it is totally brewing. 
And, you know, the best way that we can get there is to continue to be a community in ways that we can, even if it's getting together for our Go Rec event. I mean, because, you know, the closest way to form bonds is either, you know, again, through crisis or debauchery. Um, so, you know, let's let's get on this. We don't have to make these crises. You know, we can just enjoy being with other people and, and building this together. Marjorie, we love you. Thanks so much for coming on. Keep up the great work and uh, we'll chat soon. Thanks, guys. All right, Marjorie's smile has left the digital confines of our awesome garage. What'd you think, Em? <laughs> you know, it's not often that I that I come across someone these days that I feel like I could have swapped places with them and, and been very happy doing what they did and then doing what I did. And, and I feel that with, with Marjorie, like, you know, she was in intelligence. Um, she became an intelligence officer commanding, you know, a whole team. And, you know, I, I feel like there were probably parts about, you know, her career that I, I missed and I was looking for, and I chose a different track and, and maybe there were parts about, you know, what I did that she was looking for. And I, I feel like, you know, we would have probably been great teammates together. Yeah, it's really cool when you wish you had two lives so you could do all this other cool stuff, right? Because you you don't get to you don't get to go be a fighter pilot and a, a green beret and a, a, a CIA case officer <laughs> and an intelligence officer all <laughs> all at the same time, right? You right. gotta you gotta sort of choose, and you know, at some point, the details it, it does reduce down to were you satisfied with the mission? Did you enjoy your time serving with the person to your left and your right? And it's always a, a yes. Yeah, but she's right. This is this frontline generation, right? We have this in common. We not only kind of answered a call to service, we sought it out, right? And ended up here. And it's, it's incredible to me to think that one half of 1%, that's what we're talking about. It's not the the 1% that everyone talks about, like, you know, who's the, the richest people in the country. It's talking about the, the people that have actually, you know, kind of signed up to serve. And she's basically saying, you know, let's, let's do more. Let's make it a national service, you know, requirement. And, and you know, when she talked about with her son, we talk about the same thing, Jace, where we don't care how our kids serve, but they're going to serve, Right. Yeah, or they're gonna they're gonna face us <laughs> even more than they already do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right now, Jack's like, I'm gonna be Spider Man. That's how I'm gonna serve mom. Yeah, you mm -hmm. know, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. So look, it's it's a really good reminder message. It's part of the theme we keep talking about on on these shows is find something bigger than yourself and go serve that. Sometimes it's as simple as taking care of your kids or taking the trash out for your neighbor. I mean, the, the, the examples are a million miles long. It's just what we do need is more people to reward those who serve. And I don't mean I need you to buy me a beer at the, the airport restaurant or whatever, right? It's, it's more about take that back to, to your life, to your community, and just encourage youth to really view service as an option and, and help them make these decisions, help give them exposure to things that will push and challenge their, their brains and, and their horizons 
and get them out and, and have those conversations. And there will always be other ways to serve no matter, no matter your age. And yet there's something really rewarding about encouraging someone else to serve. You know, our, our kids have a, one of their babysitters who she's in kind of a funny stage. She just graduated from college. And, you know, a few months ago we were before all this COVID stuff happened, we were chatting with her and she'd never really hung out with people like us. And by people like us, I just mean people who had gone to these crazy weird places with these weird organizations with big names and, you know, kind of served that way. And lo and behold, after a few conversations and her not feeling completely kind of comfortable, didn't want to just go and, and get a job, just heart wasn't in it. And she ended up joining the Peace Corps. That's really rewarding for me. Yeah. And, and, you know, Marjorie, Marjorie talks about this in, in her book and her life story. She had, you know, an upbringing that was, you know, full of bunch of kids on a farm and, you know, and then she went to college just like, you know, she was supposed to, and she didn't really have these influences saying, go do this. It, there were other things that happened. There were other forces, but I think what she's doing a really good job of is kind of demystifying it. Like, why does it have to be secretive or why does it have to be, you have to know someone that did this, you know, right? Like, why don't we just talk about this more openly? you know, say, Hey, this is, this is actually more people need to be doing this sort of thing because it's super rewarding and it changes who you are as a person and it changes your outlook on life. Look, since nine 11, so many people have served and we don't get those benefits immediately. You know, war is this huge, it, there's nothing else like it because it's such a horrible thing. And yet it, it creates outcomes in, in those who go and serve in it that they take with them for the rest of their life because it's such a seminal thing to do. And America benefits from the experience that those who have, who have served abroad in war and in war zones and, and the, the front lines, so to say, that's the price you have to pay. And there's a lot of negative things that come out of it, but there's a lot of really positive things that come out of, out of it too. I mean, I am a better person because I went to war. And the reason why I'm super motivated to have these kinds of conversations about what I believe our country should really value. And I, I don't view our country as an abstract. I view it as people in communities all over our country is service to something greater than ourselves. And so Look at me, case in point, Marjorie, case in point, Emily, case in point, where you go and you do these really rewarding things. And then for the rest of your life, you're an evangelist to that end. That's what it's unlocked. And it's unlocked a lot of leadership, a lot of initiative and all those big, you know, big buzzwords for, for business and all of that fun stuff. But it's, it's what we hold dear in our hearts that keeps us motivated for now and just for the rest of my life. And, you know, she spoke about resilience and the resilience that her relationship with her husband has been through because of all their uh, respective combat tours. And then, you know, the resilience of when they got, you know, bad news with their newborn son. And fast forwarding to where we are today in a pandemic, which is, you know, upended 
lives and 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 we've talked about this this deployment mindset and you know this has all come from these are all lessons learned from resilience and we can with the perspective of having served in in other places and, and seen you know how the rest of the world lives you can you can sit here in in our homes and say hey we've got it pretty good let's you know let's start finding other ways to like she said in within a crisis like find inspiration. There's a lot of good lessons that come from that experience. As always, we're grateful to everyone out there. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you found this informative, educational, occasionally entertaining, hopefully all of the above. Thanks so much for listening and we'll, we'll catch you on the next one.